Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we kick off episode two of Calling the Shots with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, we are delighted to be in association, Dan, with Wisden Cricketers Almanac, the Bible of the game, which of course has been going since 1864. Well, indeed, I have hundreds of them. Well, I say hundreds. I've got dozens of them on my bookshelf. The very first one was given to me when I was seven years old. I bought it every April. I've had it given to me for my birthday on many occasions. It is an indispensable, wonderful brick of a book. It's funny you mention. I, I received the. Uh, I, I collect wisdoms as well. It's it's been a, a pastime of late, shall we say, through the uh, the lockdown period. I've been getting them in, and, and 1988 showed up in my oh, mailbox yeah. this morning. So, Daniel, uh, why don't you try and recall who the five wisdom cricketers of the year were in 1988? And I'll give you a clue by saying a couple of them ended up being, well, one of them still. Most prominent broadcaster. Wow. That's probably a pretty big clue. Uh, and there's another former broadcaster amongst that five as well. Well, 1988, so it's, of course, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with Wisdom, that refers to the domestic, well, the year before, 1987. So who was big in England in 1987? Broadcaster. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not my. My uh, my colleague Jonathan Agnew is it? Got, he got a hundred wickets or so. It is indeed. Oh, I say it is indeed your colleague Jonathan Agnew who took a try. I think he did take a hundred in nineteen eighty seven, didn't he? So yeah. Agnew's one of them. As I said, the second broadcaster was Peter Roebuck. We've also got in there Neil Foster, David Hughes. And rounded out by Sally Mullick, the less said about the better. But they were the five in 1988. Um, a lot of people love collecting wisdom, but a lot of people who may not have been involved in buying the, the great book each year and are new to this, um, we can, we're pleased to report that there are a number of ways of doing it, Dan. It isn't just simply a case of buying the book and putting it on your shelf, as wonderful as that is, but it's, a, it's an almanac for everybody. Yes, of course, it's available in hardback paperback, large format hardback, but also you get the shorter wisdom, the abridged ebook and the shorter wisdom audiobook. This is a really clever innovation. I love the idea of an audiobook. If you're tuning into a cricket podcast, you probably know uh, how straightforward it is to download an audiobook. And you can do all of that from wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020. So no matter how you want to get involved with the Almanac this year, and it's a great edition of the good book, given all that went on in the summer of 2019, you can do so at wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020. Um, if you want to buy the book itself, Dan... The best thing to do is subscribe because once you're a subscriber, you get more than half price off year on year, and that's absolutely that's great value for for the for the Bible of the game, knowing that you can get a discount of more than fifty percent. Why wouldn't you? Well, it's twenty five pounds instead of fifty five pounds, and like you're going to get one, you're going to get one year after year after year, and then next year's one could be one of the more interesting wisdoms and one of the more collectible ones ever produced. Yeah, not wrong, not wrong. It also gets you a discount on Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, the Night Watchman, which is the Wisdom Quarterly, uh, access to Wisdom Events, a site-wide discount, the 35% on all books at bloomsbury.com. So the way you get 
a subscription. It's pretty straightforward. WisdomAlmanac.com forward slash subscribe. Now, Dan, I mentioned the 2020 edition is a cracker. So much in there. We, we said on the on the last edition of Calling the Shots, I ran through a couple of the essays. Well, I thought, why not add a, a couple more? I mean, there's Colin Schindler, who looks back at uh, the 50th anniversary of what ended up being the aborted uh, Tour of South Africa in 1970. Of course, the MCC withdrawing the invitation for obvious reasons, but he go back, goes back and, and takes a look at what the book said then and revisits it. Nick Holt written a magnificent essay uh, about the origin of the hundred. He must have talked to a hundred sources when compiling many thousands of words to understand how the hundred came to be. Mark Lawson uh, has written about the importance of cricket in uh, in helping soothe the soul and, and overcoming uh, mental health issues. It's, uh, it's a wonderful piece. Um, Paul Edwards, uh, one of the best writers in the county game, uh, talks about outgrounds. And, and Dan, I know you love an outground, and oh, I'm sure yes. you'll, you'll enjoy reading Paul's essay on that. And Anand Vasu, who's a who's a wonderful Indian cricket writer, he has a look at the, the Cricket Institute in India trying to find the next Virat Kohli. In addition to all those great articles, of course, there's all the usual awards, the famous Wisdom Five Cricketers of the Year, the Book of the Year, and all the rest of that. You've got the Podcast of the Year. Well, you're on the feed of the Podcast of the Year right now, the final <laughs> Word podcast deemed by wisdom to be the podcast of the year, and who are we to argue? Ever so kind. So there's a shorter wisdom, the audio book, the ebook. There's the the great Bible, as we said before. It's all there for you. Follow it all on Twitter at Wisdom Almanac. And if you do want to subscribe, as I urge you to do, www.wisdomalmanac.com forward slash subscribe. Do it now. Do it today. And now on with the show. As Holly pitches the ball up slowly, and he's bold. Bradman. Bold, Hollies, no. Then, volley to Bradman. It's ball well pitched. Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off. It is beaten by the pace of the ball, and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it. It's all. It's high. It's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so it's all. It's a one. He's done it. Garing has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. Oh, Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Comes up and bowls and Kasparovic goes back and parries one as he caught down the leg side. There's an appeal for catches out. England have won. England have won. Got him. Why did he do that? Unbelievable. And now both for Chasing it. It's going straight into the confectionery stall and out again. 
I'm Adam Collins. And I'm Daniel Matthews. And this is Calling the Shots. Adam and I, over six episodes, are tracing the history of cricket commentary on radio and television. From the Australian and English pioneers of the 1920s and 1930s to the internationally recognised names we know today. Exploring what makes a great commentator and how their broadcasts come to inform our understanding of the game we love. Last time, we looked at the contemporary scene, investigating how you call those big moments that are going to be replayed on TVs, radios, phones and tablets around the world. This week we're going right back to the origins of cricket broadcasting, to the very first commentaries between the wars and just after when radio was the only way to keep up and television was nothing but a pipe dream. To help us tell the story we have with us three guests. But I was arguing with Don Bradman about this. That's David Frith, the masterful Anglo-Australian historian and archivist. And he said, you say here that I got out Wally Hammond with a full toss. It was not a full toss. I mean, his pride was so huge that he didn't like to... He thought that bowling a full toss was a mortal sin. And yet, after the book was printed, and after Don had died, I came across a reference to Don's own remark that evening. They used to drag a few of the players off to the studio in the evening, race them off in a car, and they give their impressions of the day's play. And there, Don Bradman confessed that it was a full toss with which he got Wally Hammond out, and uh, not in black and white, but uh, in the man's own voice. Cricket on the radio was a very powerful connection for people to what they believed was uh, something important in their lives. Of course, Jim Maxwell, a man who needs little introduction, the voice of cricket on the radio in Australia. And uh, I got a, a whiff of that in my, my early days, sitting around the radio on a Saturday afternoon, because they didn't play on Sundays in those days, uh, sitting with my father just listening to the radio. Because even in the early 60s, we didn't have television in, in our house. Um, my parents wouldn't allow it. They didn't think that was a good idea. So we listened to the radio a lot. And we listened to a lot of cricket. Well, C.B. Fry was an extraordinary chap. And that's Peter Baxter, who spent four decades from the 1970s working as a producer and broadcaster on BBC's Test Map special. Offered, as we know, the, the throne of Albania. I don't think that was entirely unique. I think it was offered to one or two people around the place. The story of him breaking the world long jump record when he allegedly put his cigar down in the groundsman's hut and changed, went out, broke the world record for the long jump, came back, changed back again and resumed his cigar. The very first broadcast took place in Sydney in December 1922 at a testimonial game to celebrate the career of Charles Bannon. Test Cricket's first century maker. Former great cricketer Len Watt was given this immortal duty, but he was not as yet giving ball-by-ball commentary as we understand it today. It's a bit sketchy, but cricket broadcasting got off the ground around that time in a stuttering way. Once tasted, the appetite was bound to grow. That first broadcast had taken place before radio stations were formally established, which didn't happen until 1923, when the government introduced sealed set regulations, licensing stations to sell radios tuned to receive only that broadcaster's channel. Sydney-based Channel 2LB seized the opportunity to assemble a team at the SCG to cover the first test of the 1924-25 Ashes. It was a series that would feature some of the greats of the game, Bill Ponsford and Clary Grimmett for the Australians, Hobbs and Sutcliffe for England. That commentary was done at the Paddington end of the SCG from a a microphone dropped near the side screen. They were just off the edge of the side screen at the northern end 
and they did what was eventually considered commentary. It was Len Watt and Clem Hill at this point. They crossed to them to get a report and they kept talking and the announcer said down the line, well, you may as well keep going. And keep going they did, but what they were delivering was not yet what we take to be commentary. That took place later in the series. Bill Smallicombe made the first ball-by-ball commentary during the third test in Adelaide in January 1925. Mind you, he did the whole match, went for over seven days on his own. <laughs> so this was, this was quite a performance. The people who first broadcast cricket on the radio by way of reporting or commentary were all-rounders, of course. Uh, there weren't specialist cricket commentators in the style of today. Looking back, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, test cricket commentary originated in Australia. The captains of that series, Vic Richardson and Arthur Gilligan, would go on to create an effective double act as summarisers in the commentary box 25 years later. Meanwhile, back in England, the development of radio followed a different path. The British Broadcasting Company had been formed in 1922 by leading wireless manufacturers, including Marconi, to help sell radio sets. This soon became established on New Year's Day 1927 by Royal Charter as the British Broadcasting Corporation. The role of this new corporation was not to sell radio sets, but instead to provide programming that served licence fee payers. And as the commercial stations that proliferated around the world had shown, a significant number of licence fee payers were attracted to sport. Enter Lance Seavking, the man in charge of outside broadcast for the BBC. John Arlott would later call him the outstanding and most creative pioneer of British broadcasting. He was credited with inventing the eight-square drawing that football commentators used to describe to radio audiences where the action was taking place. And having already produced the first rugby union internationals, Steve King put his mind to cricket. He had heard radio commentary of baseball on a trip to the USA and saw no reason why cricket couldn't be done in much the same way. In the first instance, Steve King turned to an unorthodox candidate, a reverend who grew up in Tokyo by the name of Frank Gilligan. Former Essex player, he was given the assignment of covering his former county against the touring New Zealanders at Leighton on the 14th of May, 1927. He is an interesting character because he played for Essex. He apparently was a formidable preacher. He was a canon in the Church of England. However formidable he might have been, he had to overcome a hostile press even before a ball had been bowled. The Guardian said it would be boring in the extreme, while the Daily Herald suggested chess would be more interesting. Even the BBC's own mouthpiece was sceptical. The Radio Times printed a, a page article, full page, uh, saying that obviously it would be quite impossible to broadcast every ball of the match. But he did between four and six minutes on every stint. Now, I can't believe that in that time he didn't describe the odd ball being bowled live. With that debut out of the way, further games were scheduled throughout the summer of 1927. A month after Gilligan's debut, Plum Warner, former Ashes winning captain, was assigned Lord's first broadcast game, Middlesex hosting Knots. He reported from the roof of a clock tower square of the wicket. This marked the beginning of a complicated ride for Plum, who never quite cracked the BBC code. Gillingham was given further opportunities as well, albeit getting himself into strife when reading out the names of advertising boards during a rain delay, much to the chagrin of the bosses at Broadcasting House. Teddy Wakelam, former captain of Harlequins, had given the first running sports commentary on BBC Radio in January 1927, calling the Rugby Union International between England and Wales at Twickenham. And it was Wakelam who was sent out to the Oval to take care of Surrey's home game against Middlesex. That turned out to be a fateful afternoon as he proved to be a less than perfect choice to take cricket to a wider audience. His heart wasn't in it. His account in his autobiography, is so inaccurate 
on the, the day's play he saw. He got all the scores wrong and, and everything about it and just said it was thoroughly boring. I think I don't think he liked cricket very much. And he went back to Broadcasting House and said it can't be done. And they, because he was the pioneer, the great pioneer, they accepted that, oh, right, it can't be done. Wakelam's lousy verdicts coupled with Steve King's redeployment to the drama department at the end of that year combined to leave cricket out of favour and back off the airwaves. The folly of this decision became obvious the next time the Australians came to visit in 1930. The first tour of a precocious 21-year-old who was set to tear up the record books. Who is it that all Australia raves about? Who has won our very highest praise? Don Bradman was in England, but his revolution would not be heard, let alone televised. When I think of this, I think of the 1930 Lord's Test, when Don Bradman played his greatest innings of all time, which is saying something, he made 254, and there's no film of it. And that is a mystery, and nor is there any radio uh, evidence. Nor have he said world record 334 at Leeds, not to English audiences at least, but back in Australia, radio stations combined forces to have the raw information sent from England via cable for reporting when the nation woke up. They couldn't get enough of it. I suspect the hierarchy of the BBC just thought, oh, well, the Australians are all nuts about cricket, or maybe the Australians are all nuts, and um, <laughs> and just left it at that and, and thought, we're not going to follow blindly what, what they do. By the Australian summer of 1932-33, there was no bigger name than Bradman, and to stop him, Jardine's English tourists had a canny plan. Bodyline. The timing was perfect for the ABC, which started, as we know it today, just five months earlier. Along with commercial networks, the extraordinary series would be covered from every angle on the radio, with a number of Australian players signed up to offer their stumps observations, including Bradman. So why, to this point, had cricket on the radio taken off so much more in Australia than in England. I think it has to do with the old tyranny of distance. I mean, radio and the, the Bradman phenomenon, of course, in the 30s. I mean, everyone wanted to hear what Bradman was up to, given uh, the fact that um, you know, getting to the ground to watch cricket in Australia in those days was really only for those that lived in the city or that state. It was a way of getting the message across to the whole nation. And Australia, from the word go, when radio started... Uh, was out there with sport in a, in a very big way. Despite having mishandled their opportunity during the previous home ashes, the BBC now could not ignore the unfolding drama from the Bodyline series in Australia. However, it took an unusual intervention, a broadcast from one of the world's most recognisable landmarks on the other side of the English Channel, to spring them into gear. Yeah, there were two French commercial stations that, that somehow realised that there was an appetite for this Alan Fairfax, um, New South Wales all-rounder, was um, was sent uh, by Post Parisien to the Eiffel Tower, where he he broadcast, which were things that were near to the old synthetic commentaries. He, he did he didn't do it all day, but he did quite lengthy periods, where uh, as if it was happening live, and he was being informed by cables from Australia. Fairfax had been a member of Bill Woodfall's successful touring side in 1930, but had since been jettisoned. His dispatches from Paris were making a mark, not least, as John Arlott would say later, tuning in himself, 
because they were being recorded in the present tense. Expert knowledge of the players from both sides also lent credibility to his words. But mindful of his English audience, Jardine's controversial bodyline tactics deployed by Larwood and Vos weren't emphasised when relaying England's successes on the field. I, I think the interpretation was flexible and perhaps not deliberately. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the English public and even the MCC, who might have reacted more forcibly, had the full picture. Behind the pace, the BBC belatedly enlisted the service of Australian stylist Alan Kippax, dropped from the team after the first test, to be their eyes for the remaining fixtures. But last, the powers of B were starting to realise that the problem lay not with cricket, but with the man they had assigned to cover it in those early days, Teddy Wakelam. When Australia returned to England 18 months later, the ABC knew that morning updates wouldn't cut it anymore. But technology wasn't yet sufficient to take live commentary from the UK. So they had to get resourceful. Building on what was achieved up in the Eiffel Tower, a decision was made to replicate an as-live call from Sydney. It was a smash hit. They provided a cable service describing every ball through to their studios in, in, in Market Street. So... V to B4 and then they had to work out what they were going to say, whether he cut him or pulled him or drove him. So they they made it all up from very limited information. They had to use their imagination um, and they you know, obviously had a, a sufficient knowledge of the game to make it sound um, fair dinkum. Eric Scholl was the man sent to England with the task of coding the cables while Charles Moses, who would later go on to run the ABC, was behind the mic deep into the night. He had former stars Monty Noble, Vic Richardson and Clem Hill there to keep him company, interpreting hundreds of coded messages from Shoal. Does Australia reclaim the ashes, with Bradman this time tallying 758 runs? It was so authentic with various... They had 13 people in the studio, and they had a fellow with a, you know, the old uh, acetate, disc going around on a turntable, dropping a needle to get crowd effects. So it it all sounded pretty genuine. Back in England, listeners were benefiting from a surge of energy behind cricket broadcasting in the year before that 1934 series, mostly thanks to Gerald Cock, a successor to Steve King. And at his disposal, he had a man with the perfect voice and disposition for the task of broadcasting Ashes cricket, Howard Marshall. By then an experienced broadcaster, Marshall's ad-libbed reports were far more in keeping with modern rhythms, taking in the atmosphere of the games he was covering by moving around the ground. Despite causing a stir and hundreds of complaints from sensitive listeners for exclaiming on air, Gore blimey O'Reilly, you are bowling well, demand for more of Marshall grew as the series moved to Lords. It was a ground Marshall knew well, and he was given a designated vantage point in the tavern to observe and record. Now, this was a vast improvement on the season before when the MCC asked him to leave the premises, compelling him to give his live report from a nearby house in which a nine-year-old was loudly practising scales on the piano. Australia's chances aren't very rosy at the moment. Uh, Now we have Verity, who's done such great execution today, Verity bowling to O'Reilly, who has withstood the English attack for a considerable time and withstood it very nobly in in very difficult and depressing circumstances for him. It would turn out to be one of the most memorable tests of the interwar period, Headley Verity claiming 14 wickets in a day to swamp Woodfall's tourists. As the match moved to its gripping final stanza, producers gave Marshall the go-ahead to start calling the action ball by ball to the game's conclusion, a landmark moment. He was remembering that basic fact which uh, all the great commentators don't they remember that the radio commentator is the camera 
and you just describe what you see. That is the most important thing. Do that. Paint the picture and keep it the right way up, as um, Wilfred Rhodes, I think, said when he went blind. All the crowd seemed to be making remarks. The crowd naturally are in high good humour. England are doing magnificently. Here comes Bowes running up. He's just going to bowl. He bowls Wall, playing him with considerable difficulty, but still playing him. Ironical cheering from the crowd. I don't know whether you can hear it. Bowes walking slowly purposefully back to his pile of sawdust. If you listen to his commentaries now, you could see that barring the sort of the accents of the 30s of someone of his of his time, um, if you, you could plonk him into a commentary team now and he would be just, he'd be completely at home. What he was doing was, was commentary. Here comes Verity, bowling to Wall. Oh, he's out. That's the end of the match. The Bears are pulling up the stumps. Wall played very gently, and Patsy Hendren, at a silly point, uh, took the catch. And Australia are all out for 118. That is, if my arithmetic isn't bad, uh, too bad, they are beaten by an innings and 38 runs. He showed it could be done and should be done, and that's where the, uh, the touch paper got lit, I suppose. That piece of audio, the oldest surviving recording of live cricket in the BBC's archive, was so well received that by the third test in Manchester, scorer Arthur Wrigley was brought in to support Marshall for a match that received equal billing to Wimbledon in the Radio Times. Cricket on the radio had finally arrived in England. The next piece of the puzzle was the appointment of the new chief of the BBC's outside broadcast division. A tall, stately and enterprising man with serious plans for sport. Uh, was the great Seymour de Lobinier. Or Lobby, as he was affectionately known. At his insistence, cricket's footprint quickly grew. Marshall was deployed to cover India's test tour of England in 1936. That same year when Crystal Palace burned, it was Lobby on the scene telling the world of that tragic fire. And then when the new king was coronated the year after that, it was Lobby running the show at Westminster Abbey and Howard Marshall on the microphone. He was the man who conceived how commentary could be done, the whole shape of commentary. And, and he had, at last, the vehicle to do it when they discovered Howard Marshall. There's no question that he and Marshall actually sat down and discussed the whole technique of, of radio commentary and how you would do it. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the planning for how the art could be, uh, could be transformed into something practical. Lobby's notes for would-be commentators were honed with Marshall and distributed to newcomers for decades. As late as 1970, Christopher Martin Jenkins was given Lobby's notes when he started out with the BBC. Thanks to Lobby, cricket on the radio had its champion and suddenly everything was on the table as the reach of radio dramatically expanded. The new man in charge had the bit between his teeth, but he still had work to do. Yes, well, even after after 1934 and Howard Marshall, uh, they obviously hadn't entirely convinced the hierarchy of the BBC, who still thought that uh, that maybe cricket would be better just concentrating on, on the village game and a bit of slap and tickle and that sort of thing. Thinking laterally to help placate his superiors in a still hostile press, Lobby, in his second full summer in charge, had an idea for covering three aspects of cricket. It didn't quite have the desired result. And uh, they sent uh, Thomas Woodruff, who had re- uh, retired from the Royal Navy fairly recently and was uh, was being used as an announcer and, and in the outside broadcast department doing this and that. And they sent him down to a village in Surrey called Tilford 
to do commentary on a on a village cricket match. And Eddie is bowling from the Chapel Farm end. Now here he comes. And he's bowls quite well. There's a new fellow in uh, for the Bourne, a tall man wearing a cap and a, and a sweater. And he doesn't look at all comfortable. The score now is, we'll see in a minute, they're a bit slow on it because the scoreboard's out in the rain. And the small boy who's got to put the numbers up doesn't like the rain too much. Woodruff's commentary on that match, together with the ducks and tractors in the background, survives. Sadly, the mountain of county games that Lobby produced and the women's ashes tests of 1937 with England hockey international Marjorie Pollard on mic are lost to posterity. While Lobby was pushing the boundaries of what was possible in England, technological impediments still made it impossible for him to get a direct feed from Australia. Australia for the 1936-37 Ashes. Once again it was the French, this time in the guise of Normandy Radio, who stole a march on the BBC. They broadcast end-of-day reports via Australian cricket lover and Paris resident Bruce Anderson, who described the day's play at 7.45am via cables sent from Bill Ponsford just before the close and collated in Paris by Roy Plumley, who later created Desert Island Discs. This was broadcast just as the BBC began their own report with the score at 8am, which dear old Bruce didn't even know until the BBC announced it. But back in Australia, a different approach to commentary was emerging. The the very distinctive commentary of Mel Morris in 1936-7, and you can clearly hear the atmosphere in the background of the crowd and the applause, Bradman batting at the time, and it's a very Australian voice. I mean, the the two old-style Australian voices that are much like what you you um, think of from the First World War, Johnny Moyes and Mel Morris. Ah, they've got to stop the game and clear the whole lot of them off the field. There are people up there arguing the point with the umpire. I mean, it is a, it, it's a very definitive old Australian style. Um, you would actually find, if you go back, that the voices that were more rough and ready were those that were describing sporting events. Um, but mo- most of the rest of the broadcasting on the ABC, rather like the BBC, was very formal. A distinctively Australian style of commentary was maturing, but finally, a distinctively English style was flowering with increasing radiance. Time for a quick break on Calling the Shots, when we return the arrival of a couple of commentary icons. And Dan, as we take a break, a quick word about a new partner of Calling the Shots, the Lord's Taverners, who you have plenty to do with, the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. Oh, they really are. They're a fantastic charity. I do a lot of work with them. It's a charity that breaks down barriers, empowers disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. Its its cricket program supports some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK using sport specifically and recreation to build links between communities and encouraging groups to play sport together. Uh, you'll be familiar with sort of table cricket you may have seen, which is a really big mm. initiative, uh, which is about activities. Uh, they raise money so that they can purchase those many minivans that you'll have seen going around the country, which helps them to get disabled and disadvantaged children and young people into places where they can be active and fulfil more of their potential. It's a truly terrific charity. I mentioned that they're, they're a long-standing organisation having started in 1950. They help more than 12,000 young people each year. You talked about table cricket. There's also Wickets, which is a community cricket program aimed at those living in 
high areas of poverty. There's Super Ones, which gives young people living with disabilities a chance to play cricket while improving confidence and independence. It's a charity that's laying the foundations for a positive future by building inclusive communities, breaking down barriers and empowering disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential. So of course they're providing a lifeline for some of the most at-risk communities in the UK, tackling issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation, also isolation, something of course we all know about right at the moment. So Tana, it's pretty straightforward. If you want to learn more about what the Lord's Taverners do, more about their work, just simply visit www.lordstaverners.org. Right now, more than at any time perhaps, it's so important that we support our charities. Yeah, absolutely. Good people doing good things. Lordstaverners.org. Jump on, have a look. And now back to the show. The Ashes in 1938 took place in England, and by now, Lobby at the BBC had his ducks in a row, with Howard Marshall at the absolute peak of his powers as the definitive voice of cricket in England. And just as well as there was some momentous cricket being played out. 707 for 5, Hutton 332, and all our hearts are with this young Yorkshireman at this moment. Although this morning Hutton's gone from 300 to 332 in an hour and a quarter, he's been in for 12 and a quarter hours. It's just uh, hardly bears thinking of the amount of strain that that's involved. Now here's Fleetwood Smith again to Hutton. Hutton hits him. Oh, beautiful stroke. There's the record. Well, it was um, a blessing that uh, media was really beginning to respond to the game because imagine if there was hardly anything on the 38 uh, oval test match. Well, that was the most lovely stroke. A late cut off uh, Fleetwood Smith's leg break which absolutely flashed to the boundary for four runs to give Hutton the record, beating Bradman's record, made at Leeds in 1930, their singing. Terrific reception, the whole crowd standing up and cheering all around the ground, thousands of them all standing up. Bradman's been rushed over to shake Hutton by the hand. Don coming up to shake his hand. You see weary old Fleetwood Smith coming up to shake his hand too, although he took one for 298. <laughs> and that is the record. That's the highest score ever made by an individual in any kind of test match. He's beaten Bradman's record in England and Australia test matches. He's beaten Hammond's record in all kinds of test matches. And there we are. Hutton is on top of the world. And the heartiest possible congratulations to him. That commentary would stand up easily today. Slowly, gradually, Howard Marshall and Lobby together were dragging English audiences into a new era. But as Howard Marshall was ruling the airwaves in England, the 1938 series saw the emergence of a man, Alan McGilvray, who would come to dominate Australian coverage for the next four and a half decades. Here's Charles Moses, the first general manager of the ABC. It was recommended to me by Monty Noble, the famous Australian captain. And he said, well, I couldn't recommend anybody better than Alan McGilvray because, in my view, he's the best captain New South Wales has had. And he said his knowledge of the game and his judgment is very, very sound. And if you can get him to broadcast, the thing was then to make a broadcaster out of a very fine cricketer, which we certainly did. He was uh, playing for New South Wales. He, he played against and captained New South Wales against England in 36-7. And uh, I, as I understand it, he was asked during a Sheffield Shield match, I think, to go into the studio and do something. And out of that came the opportunity uh, to do what he did in 1938. Barnes turns, runs in, volley to Bradman. It's ball well pitched, Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball, and it races away for another four. The 
Stormwater Bradman taking his score to 101. A century 130 minutes, a glorious innings biased, and Australia is now building herself into a very sound position, assisted by a great knock by Bradman. McGilvray's big break in 1938 wasn't covering matches at the ground. He was cutting his teeth in the challenging milieu of synthetic commentary. That clip was him interpreting cables that were being sent by Eric Scholl from England back to Australia, as he had four years before. I've got the, the printout of a cable here, uh, a typical cable. Brightening, Fleetwood, Hammond, full, firstly, two, Hassett, secondly, full, four, straight, unchance, bowler, thirdly, no ball, full, two, off-driven, run, appeal, Hutton, fourthly, four, swept, bowler, keeper, off-pushed. And they were working this out. That's four balls of the over they've had there. The unchance means that it was slightly lofted, but the bowler didn't really have a chance of, of getting it as it went past him. As for sound effects... The commentator made the sound of the bat meeting the ball and of a ball striking pad by tapping a wooden cup with a pencil held in his right hand or the heavy rubber band around it which produced the dull thud of the ball hitting the pad. But occasionally those cables could contain misleading or ambiguous information. As McGilvray recalled upon retiring from the box nearly five decades later. Oh, that was dreadful, yes. Two Macs, McCormick and, and McCabe. And uh, the cable only had Mac uh, caught somebody, bowled somebody. So I turned to Vic, he was sitting in the corner, and I said, who will I give? That's Vic Richardson. Yeah, Vic Richardson. And he said, I'll give it a stand. He's 200 and something. He's throwing the bat at everything. So I had McCabe out and standing ovation of magnificent innings and the crowd were cheering him and I let, took him right into the pavilion and then the next cable came McCormick. <laughs> it was a dreadful sensation. McGilvray inevitably found himself on the microphone just as Howard Marshall was back in England for Len Hutton's record-breaking moment. And mercifully, the cables on this occasion told him exactly what he needed to know. And now the big fella moving in. Yes, and there it is. A four to Hutton as he whips that one down towards third man and Bradman moves in. And the first to congratulate Len as he comes back for that second run he needn't bother. It's there. I could visualise that. I knew what Bradman would do. He'd be the first to go up and then the others surrounded him. And that heck was, wasn't far up the truth really, but it was all done in a room. <laughs> made up. Despite the commentary team being 12,000 miles away and not able to see the action, and as smooth and professional as those commentaries sound, there was still time for controversy and frivolity into the wee hours. But McGilvray told the story that Vic Richardson and Hal Hooker, because they used to work through the night, used to get a bit thirsty. And uh, on one occasion, he said they got into an argument and they started fighting under the table. <laughs> and he had to keep the whole thing going. Uh, they, I think they used to drink a bit of whiskey in those days. Um, and um, <laughs> McGilvray said often things got a bit out of, out of rhythm, so to speak. Those synthetic commentaries of 1934 and 1938 left a lasting legacy, serving as enduring proof of how captivated, obsessed almost, Australians were by Bradman and cricket during an otherwise bleak decade, the 1930s. As for McGilvray, he would go on to commentate over 200 tests, but declared that the most exhilarating moments of his distinguished broadcasting career were in that Sydney studio. But 1938 saw the last Ashes series requiring those kinds of inventive recreations from England. The technology was moving on. When they got to 1938, there were times when they used to take shortwave commentary from the ground. The shortwave reception was at its best in the early hours of the morning 
moving into the last session of the day. And that's when they used to try and go to it. And, and eventually, you know, you've got the, the cable that went out of the, the sea and everything else. And um, I think by the 50s, they were able to give um, a much better quality service. If 1938 had been a watershed for radio coverage in England, the winter of 1938-39 brought live broadcasts back to the UK of an overseas tour for the first time as 31-year-old E.W. Swanton, who was covering the MCC's tour to South Africa for the Daily Telegraph, convinced Lobby that he could combine his day job with broadcasting from the matches. That was a very important step in the broadcasting of um, cricket internationally as well. The ball is turning a little bit more now than it did uh, yesterday, but it's still a batsman's wicket. Because he was doing these spells of commentary for the BBC, uh, the SABC had never done cricket commentary at that stage and they heard him doing this and he started doing more for them. Indeed, in that first test of the series at Johannesburg, Swanton was fortunate enough to commentate on a Boxing Day hat-trick by Tom Goddard. Sadly, his call of this momentous occasion has been lost. What does survive, though, from the Cape Town test a week later gives a flavour of Swanton's emerging style. Now here's Benedict again and it's glasses and hitting up Beautiful shot. Fast mid-off. Now that makes South Africa score 204 for six wickets. Velasquez not out 22. Nurse not out 71. Four fours in four balls. But no sooner had Swanton got his big break than the world was hurled into a mighty cataclysm. Everything was brought to a shuddering halt in... Uh... 1939, and of course, life changed very much for dear old Jim Swanton, who was incarcerated with the Japanese uh, several years and uh, lost half his body weight in that time. Mark marked him as it marked all of them forevermore. With his old battered wisdom, his one great treasured possession that he that he had with him. Yes, he did. Uh, I think there was another. I think there was an Australian in the camp with him, and he and the two of them managed to put on these dummy commentaries. They sort of made up when he he used the um, the wisdom as his sort of reference point for a lot of the ideas that he was doing, and apparently it greatly uh, entertained the troops. When cricket came back on the BBC in earnest in 1945, a familiar voice returned at the helm, but not for long. Well, yes, unintentionally. I mean, I think the war probably was the was the catalyst for Marshall moving on. He, I mean, he'd been on the beaches at Normandy, um, describing you know the gliders going overhead and and the the landings going on. So he he was a war correspondent. Then he was he came, when he came back, he started commentating at the start of the the Victory Test series, and then was summoned to London to um, to rehearse for commentating on the Victory Parades, and he never did cricket again after that. Indeed, a new voice was introduced to cricket coverage, a voice that would appear regularly on the airways for the next 20 years, anchoring the BBC's coverage of the 1948 Olympics, as well as tennis, rugby union and athletics. Rex Alston joined the BBC in uh, the middle of the war, uh, he'd been a schoolmaster at Bedford, but he uh, was taken into the BBC as a billeting officer. And after a bit, I think they decided that he wasn't very good at that, but he was a reasonable voice to be used. He got himself into the outside broadcast department because he had uh, play, captained 
Bedfordshire in the minor counties. He'd uh, played on the wing for Roslyn Park and for Bedford at rugby. And as a sprinter, he'd run second only to uh, the great Harold Abrahams in the varsity uh, sprints uh, in the varsity match there. So he was quite an all-round athlete, and it turned out he had a very easy voice. Followed to Pettiford, another short one, and magnificently pulled. It was a grand shot by Pettiford. Four more down to the tavern. It was a short ball, a rising ball. Pettiford put his right foot across, banged it for four. Four more runs to Pettiford, his total 32, and the Australian score 388 for nine. In uh, 1945, when they played the... Uh, victory test matches he joined Howard Marshall for the first match and he found himself left on his own when Marshall was recalled to uh, London to rehearse for the um, victory day parades in in the capital and in fact Marshall left him and never did cricket again so uh, it was very much the baton having been passed over at that point. Within a year, the BBC had unearthed, in addition to Alston, another talent, perhaps the most distinctive and revered radio commentator the game has ever seen. Well, he was already a man of some achievement, young Arlott. He was a policeman in Southampton during the war, uh, experienced the Blitz on the south coast, lost friends. But I remember him pointing out to me once when we were driving through the uh, streets of, of Southampton coming in from the airport, a factory doorway and he said I stood in that doorway for five nights in a row while they were bombing the docks so he'd done it done his stint on the beat but as he pounded the beat he'd been writing poetry and he sent some of this to uh, John Betjeman who uh, he'd met before and uh, Betjeman sent it on to the BBC and the BBC uh, invited Arlott to join them as a literary producer in the BBC Eastern Service and it was a pretty chaotic scene. After the war, everybody was looking for work. So the country was piecing itself together. It was pretty chaotic, and uh, John's talent just shone through. However chaotic the scene, how does a man go so rapidly from being a literary producer to a cricket commentator? In the Eastern Service, in uh, 1946, the start of uh, 1946, they were having one of their Monday morning meetings, and someone realised that an Indian cricket team, the first touring team to come to England after the war, was uh, was about to arrive. And uh, they looked around themselves and said, we really ought to be covering this, but does do anyone in the department know anything about cricket? And Arlott put his hand up and said, well, I do. And uh, the head of the section said, have you ever done a cricket broadcast before? And Arlott slightly bent the truth by saying that he'd done, uh, he said that yes, he had. And in fact, all he had done was one feature on Hambledon. Uh, on that basis, however, he was uh, sent off to cover the first few matches of the uh, tour. And this was received so well back in India, the BBC's man in Delhi sent a cable back to the Eastern Service saying, "You, I don't know who this chap is, but you must keep him on because he's going down a storm here. And so Arlott was uh, encouraged to do the rest of the uh, of the summer following the Indian team around. Initially, reservations about Arlott's suitability were driven less by his lack of cricketing experience than his vocal delivery. Here is Arlott himself recalling Seymour de Labinier's rather blunt feedback. His old lobby said, uh, I've listened to you, he said, I think you've got a very vulgar voice. Matter of fact, he said, can't understand why people want to listen to it, he said, but uh, you've got an interesting mind, he said, and I think you'd better continue. 
It was pretty good, Lobby Reddy. He was a harsh critic, but his criticisms were invariably right. And of course, mine was and is a vulgar voice. And that uh, pretty high-pitched, tense, violent voice was, it, it certainly made an impression. It was so different from everything else that was coming across. It was BBC pronounced English in those days. And um, there wasn't uh, much taste for um, regional variations. This was something people hadn't heard before. It's almost as if he put the the plough to one side and come off the field to do a little bit of sports commentary. Uh, most people found it refreshing. The first Ashes test after the war took place in Australia in 1946-47 and Alan McGilvray was ready to retake his previous position in the commentary box. Well, after the war, 46-7, he became the established voice with Vic Richardson and for the Ashes series, Arthur Gilligan used to come out from England. I remember for one reason that that great man, Arthur Gilligan, we were broadcasting from the member stand and he walked up the steps and I was doing some talking and then I saw this great Arthur Gilligan. I was walking, working with Vic Richardson then and to meet the man that I admired so much when I watched him play and I had to talk with him, my goodness, he helped me a lot, both he and Vic, because uh, it was Vic and Arthur. I was only the small boy. The desire for cricket on the radio was now growing to unprecedented proportions, with reports at the time suggesting that one in four Australians was listening to the series on the ABC. There was a huge factor in uh, you know, gal- galvanising society, I would imagine. You, you have to consider that uh, there was still a lot of deprivations in society in those days with rationing of all sorts. And uh, again, sport, cricket was an outlet for everyone. Till television arrived in 1956, I mean, cricket on the radio was the big thing. Radio was king. It's a dynamic force in Australian society in so many ways. Then the first Ashes series in England since the war took place in 1948. Ten years had passed since Len Hutton had made that world record score and since Bradman had retained the urn. This would be the Don's fourth and final visit as he bade farewell to the international game. So it's almost a, a new generation coming out of the war uh, that's attuned to cricket. But um, you know, the, the power, the force of the name Bradman is still paramount in everyone's lives at that point. And upstairs in the box, from having been a one-man band under Marshall a decade earlier, the BBC radio team for 1948 was formidable and included an Australian for the first time. The excitement of the series began to excite people in the BBC that there was something in this uh, cricket commentary, really, and uh, they had a pretty uh, good commentary team together with me. Alan McGilvery joining them on his first tour for the ABC, Arlott, Alston, Swanton, all doing the ball-by-ball commentary. Now Miller is about to bowl to Yardley. And Yardley has... He's bowled! All out. England are all out. 496. In 1948, the ABC took commentary of every ball of the series, whereas the BBC, the light uh, programs, only crossed to the cricket occasionally. They took, you know, a half hour here, a half hour there. So it sounds to me that whether it, uh, that was particularly important. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 fact, the fact is that... the. That 1948 series was broadcast in full back to Australia.
Despite the pasting England were copping at the hands of the invincible Australians, the interest and time on the air only grew through the series. Why? The same reason radio had emerged as such a potent force to begin with. The man who changed the game forever. Here's the applause for Bradman as he comes in. Yes, of course we have that classic commentary to finish the series when uh, Rex Alston handed over to... uh, to Arlott as, uh, as Bradman came in to play his last innings. Well, it's a wonderful reception. The whole crowd is standing and the England team are joining in and led by Yardley, three cheers for the Don as he gets to the wicket. Bradman is now taking guard. Hollis is going to bowl at him and John Arlott shall describe the first ball. So come on, John. And then John Arlott takes over for probably the most famous delivery in cricket history. Well, I don't think I'm as deadly as you are, Rex. I don't expect to get a wicket. But it's rather good to be here when Don Bradman comes into bat his last test. And now here's Hollies to bowl to him from the Vauxhall end. He bowls, Bradman goes back across his wicket and pushes the ball gently in the direction of the the Houses of Parliament, which are out beyond mid-off. It doesn't go that far, it merely goes to Watkins at silly mid-off. No runs, still 117 for one. Two slips, a silly mid-off and a forward short leg close to him as Hollies pitches the ball up slowly and he's bowled. Bradman, bold, hollies, not. Bold, hollies, not. And what do you say under those circumstances? How, I wonder if you see a ball very clearly in your last test in England, the ground where you played out some of the biggest cricket of your life and where the opposing team have just stood round you and given you three cheers and the crowd has clapped you all the way to the wicket. And if you really see the ball at all. These two behemoths, McGilvery and Arlott, had come together at an extraordinary time for cricket and for the post-war world. But their relationship wasn't as smooth as their on-air delivery would lead you to believe. There is, of course, the great tale of, of um, the antipathy between um, John Arlott and Alan McGilvery, which started at the beginning of that tour when... Um, The Australians are playing one of their early matches and Rex Alston, as the senior staff man on cricket, was covering that. And with him, under his wing a bit, was uh, Alan McGilvray. And at the close of play, uh, they put Alan in touch with the studios in Sydney and he recorded his uh, close of play summing up. And uh, Arlott, sitting at another county match, was listening across to this and when it had finished, he, uh, not realising that McGilvray still had his headphones on, said, my God, Rex, what have you got there? And McGilvery heard it and really never forgave him. And uh, I know when I first uh, was uh, taken on to the TMS strength as a, as a production assistant, uh, one of the instructions I was given was to make sure that McGilvery never followed Arlott on the commentary rotor because he would uh, really diss almost everything that Arlott had said in his time. I think he was slightly overawed by McGilvery. Very vulnerable, our John. He felt that uh, his delivery might be seen as a little bit shallow after McGilvery's knowing commentary. It's very interesting because I always reckoned that McGilvery was a different commentator in Australia than he was in England. Because in England, he always found himself between Arlott and Johnston. And he was really trying. Because it's 
as you know, it can be a fairly competitive business, commentary, and he was wanting to show people that he could do it. By 1948, cricket broadcasting on the radio had come to resemble what we recognise today. Leading the charge were these two giants, Arlett and McGilvray, and in both cases, their journeys were just beginning. As for the mark they would go on to leave, Richie Benno put it no better than upon the occasion of McGilvray's final test in England some 37 years later. Well, there have been, to my mind, two outstanding radio broadcasters over the years. There have been a lot of good ones, but two of them have been outstanding. One is John Arlett, the Englishman, and the other one is Alan McGilvray, the Australian. A little like Arlett was his voice. There's no one else's. And he had this lovely, soft, intimate way of, of speaking. He had a lovely voice. He had the knowledge. He had the delivery. Perfect. Absolute perfection. And he used the pause magnificently, and he used the crowd. He always told me, he said, you've got to use the crowd, so make sure you get rid of the ball before it's bowled. And that was his technique, so that, you know, he didn't get beaten by the crowd when a wicket fell. I probably learnt more about broadcasting cricket sitting behind him and seeing the game through his eyes and hearing his voice than from, from anyone else at the time because his timing was immaculate and his, his knowledge was superb. The game has just begun And they're looking for a run There's just one voice for the cricket So they say He's everything to cricket McGilvray would go on to have an illustrious career with the ABC, defining Australia's understanding of the game for the next four decades. And Arlott would become the foundation stone of the longest-running radio sport programme of all time, the mighty Test Match Special, the institution that would dominate the cricket airwaves around the world for the next 60 years. A big thank you to David Frith, Peter Baxter and Jim Maxwell for being so generous with their time and appearing on the second episode of this new series. Calling the Shots is being produced in partnership with The Pinch Hitter, a fabulous new initiative from the same people who bring you The Night Watchman. During this time of global uncertainty, this exciting new magazine will be released once a fortnight, chock full of contributions from some of the best freelance cricket writers in the world. Calling the Shots will arrive alongside each edition of The Pinch Hitter, which you can subscribe to at thenightwatchman.net. Simple as that. It is being made on a pay-what-you-can-afford basis with all financial contributions going back into commissioning more brilliant cricket writing. So don't wait. Jump straight onto thenightwatchman.net to get hold of edition three of The Pinch Hitter. In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller of Bad Producer Productions for making this show possible. Call of the Shots is another proud member of the Bad Producer family. For more of their shows, jump on badproducerproductions.com. That's all for us today on Calling the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for episode three, charting the global success of the phenomenon that is Test Match Special. And as we sign off, sit back and enjoy once again dear old Tommy Woodruff, the man who had commentated on that village match in Tilford back in 1937, as well as the opening of the 1936 Olympic Games and Chamberlain's famous return from Munich, but he is destined to be remembered for his chaotic and inebriated description of the Spithead Review. Until next time, bye for now. His commentary position was his old ship, as chance would have it, HMS Nelson, and some of his former brother officers were on board and they took him to the wardroom and they really did a job on him, so that when his time came to broadcast live, he was several sheets to the wind. Once again, we're taking you on board HMS Nelson, 
for a description of the scene at Spithead tonight by Lieutenant Commander Thomas Woodruff. At the present moment, the whole fleet is lit up. When I say lit up, I mean lit up by fairy lamps. We've forgotten the whole Royal Review. We've forgotten the Royal Review. The whole thing is lit up by fairy lamps. It's a fantastic. It isn't a fit at all. It's just... Uh, it's fairyland. The whole fit is in fairyland. Now, if you'll follow me through... Do you mind? The next few moments... You'll, you'll find the fleet doing odd things. Now, at the present moment, the New York office is lit out. And when I say a fleet is lit up... In lamps, I mean... She's outlined, the whole ship's outlined, in little lamps. I'm sorry, I was telling some people to shut up talking. Um, what I mean is this, that the whole fleet is lit up in fairly lamps, and each ship is outlined. Now, as far as I can see, it's about, I suppose I can see it down about five or six miles. Ships are all lit up. They're outlined, the whole lot. Even destroyers are outlined. In the old days, you know, destroyers used to be outlined by a little kind of pyramid of light. And nowadays, destroyers are lit up by the outline themselves. In a second or two, we're going to fire rockets and we're going to fire all sorts of things in the ship. And you can't fuss the sea. You'll hear them going off. And you may hear my reaction when I see them go. Because, um... I'm going to try and tell you what they look like as they go off. But at the moment, there's a whole huge fleet yard. The thing we saw this afternoon, this colossal fleet, lit up by lights. And the whole thing isn't fairyland. It isn't true. It isn't here. And as I say it, it's gone. It's gone. There's no fleet. It's, it's disappeared. No magician who ever could have waved his wand could have waved his with more acumen than he has now at the present moment. The fleet's gone. It's disappeared. Uh, I'm trying to give you, ladies and gentlemen, a perfect turn. The fleet's gone. It's disappeared. I was talking to you in the middle of this jam. In the middle of this fleet. And what's happened is the fleet's gone, disappeared and gone. We had 100, 200 warships all around us a second ago. And now they've gone. At a signal by the Morse code, at a signal by the fleet flagship, which I'm in now, they've gone. They've disappeared. There's nothing between us and heaven. There's nothing at all.